Go to Philippians chapter number four this morning. We are kissing Philippians goodbye. We have been in this book since February, and we are ending it this morning with the last few verses of chapter number four. If you're newer with us, our preferred way of, of teaching and preaching is to select the book of the Bible and just to work through it verse by verse. We don't always do that, but the majority of the time we do, and we're ending our study of Philippians today, which I'm excited about. If I do want to encourage you as we approach these last few verses to consider them very diligently, and if you're not careful, you can approach the beginning of a book where it's, you know, Paul and Timotheus, servants of Jesus Christ, greetings to the church at Philippi sort of stuff, or the end of the book, and you can see the verses as uninteresting or very humdrum, and that there's really nothing to learn there, that the words are a bit perfunctory, but they're not. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. And all Scripture includes the last four verses of Philippians chapter number four. So we want to look at these, we want to consider them intently, and we want to glean and learn from these verses, even though it's the, it's the conclusion of a book. So there's a lot to glean, and I'm excited to work through them with you this morning. Let's read them together first. Philippians chapter number four, look at verse number 20. We looked at uh, just being generous last week and how when you're generous, God will be generous to you. We, we ended in verse number 19, that God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Then verse number 20. Now unto God and our Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Salute, or you could say greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren with, which are with me greet you. All the saints salute you, chiefly they that are of Caesar's household. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. This morning we're going to look at three thoughts just in turn, and the text actually lays them out very simply for us. They're glory, greetings, and grace. And it's not complicated, but it is profound what is laid out for us. And the first thought is from verse number 20. It's glory to God. Paul says in verse 20, Now unto God and our Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now understand, this is far more than some obligatory expression of piety. This is not Paul tacking on to the end of his letter this phrase that he just always says at the end of the letter because this is just kind of muscle memory now. I just end my letters with glory to God moving on. This, this is meant to be good doxology that focuses our attention back to where it needs to be, back to God, back to his glory, back to understanding him. And these words reflect the theological orientation of Paul's heart. And they should reflect our theological orientation that we understand above all else, we want to give glory to God. Paul says it as forever and ever. Like that's a long time. Forever and ever be glory to God. Then he says, amen, so be it. Like let it be so. Let this be the case that you give glory to God over and over and over and over again forever and ever. And honestly, this, this is not complicated. This is a fastball down the middle of the plate. Give glory to God in what you do. It was interesting to me about two years ago, I was studying for a sermon series that I preached to you around Christmas time. We, for about four weeks, had a series called He Came, looking at why did Jesus come, the, the texts that clearly tell us Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus came to give his life a ransom for many. But as I studied through that, and I actually didn't preach a sermon on it, but I, as I studied through that, 
I wanted to know, okay, Jesus came for us, but what made him want to come for us in the first place? Like, was there a motive behind the motive? Was, was there something driving him, God, coming down in the flesh to redeem us in the first place? And some would say, yes, there is. You know, God loves us. He's a God of love. God is a God of love. But that when you look at the Bible, that's not actually the motive of why Jesus came. The motive for why he came for us wasn't just that he looked down and saw a bunch of helpless people who, who walked away from him and were contrary to God, and he just couldn't help but love us, so he came. The, the Bible teaches us something different, that Jesus was not the cat lady at the end of your street that couldn't just help but to take in the poor cat. Anyone have a cat lady at the end of the street? Anyone the cat lady in the room? You, you know, you have 28 cats, and here comes another stray cat, and you just can't help but to bring that into your house. That's not actually what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that the motive behind him, and he does love us, but the, the, the real overarching motive is the glory of God. This is what Romans 15 says. Now the God of patience and consolation grants you to be like-minded one toward another according to Christ Jesus. So that's an important verse. We've been looking at Philippians that emphasize Christ-mindedness and having the mind of Christ. Chapters 2, chapters 3, chapters 4 all emphasize that. So when this happens, this says that ye may with one mind and one mouth glorify God. What will happen when you have the mind of Jesus and you're on the same page that you will begin to glorify God together. If we come to church and have the mind of Christ, then glory will be given to God. That's what happens. Even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Wherefore, receive or accept ye one another as Christ also accepted or received us. Why? To the glory of God. Christ accepts us, receives us, redeems us to the glory of God. Now I say that Jesus Christ was a minister of the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made unto the Father. So Jesus came to fulfill promises that were given to the Jews in the Old Testament and that the Gentiles, which is most of us, might glorify God for his mercy. Why does he come? Why does he accept us? Why does he redeem us? Why does he save us? So that we will glorify God. What this means is, in a nutshell, that God is God-centered. And that truth should stun you a little bit if you don't realize it. That God is God-centered. Some people are okay with being God-centered as long as they feel that God is man-centered. But God is not man-centered. God is very concerned about his own glory. And when you try to make God man-centered, it's a very dangerous place to be. And you end up viewing the scriptures and viewing Jesus in some really unhealthy ways. When you do that, you tend to make God a means to yourself. And you end up having some selfish motivations that are baked into your theology. And this is, this is very normal for our culture, but especially even for the church in light of our culture. Because we live in a very Oprah-ific, self-esteem, we're great, awesome world. Where there is a lot of self-aggrandizing and self-esteem and self-actualization and self-love and self-help. And all of these have ourselves in common. And, you, and secular people tend to get their identity with no reference to God. Then Christian people import it a little bit and they start to get their identity in reference to God. But then they take God and try to make him man-centered. And, and that's just not the truth. The truth biblically is that we as humans are the problem, not the solution. And that the solution that's offered to us is not because of us, it's actually because of him and his glory. 
And we can tend to, to pull this into all of our teaching, even our stories. I will give you just a very bottom shelf illustration of this. I've heard a lot of messages. I preached a few messages. You may have taught a few lessons on David and Goliath. And most of the time, the story will go like this. Goliath is bad. Goliath is a giant. Gi Goliath is your problems. Goliath is your sin. You're David. You can conquer your giant with the help of the Lord. So go conquer the giant. And that's the way the story goes. What happens in that is that you actually being the hero with nod my hat to God and a tip, to, a tip of the hat to him that he helps me, but you end up being the hero, the hero of the story. You're not the hero of the story. The truth biblically is that Goliath is your sin and is your problem and that David is Jesus who steps on the scene and conquers the giant that you had stood no chance of conquering and does for you what you could not do for yourself and you're the weasley little scared soldier sitting on the hillside that can't do anything but Jesus does it for you. So we lift him on our shoulders and we sing praises to him and we say glory to him because he did it for us. You can tend to start to twist and make it to where it's about yourself. And you wouldn't say it in those words, but that's what's happening, that you start to steal a little bit of the glory for yourself and take it away from God. I was, I was reflecting on this just a couple weeks ago. We were here in church singing Sunday morning, and we were singing a song that I've sung a lot of times and has a lot of good things, but we were singing the song, I Know Whom I Have Believed. And there's a phrase in that that I was, I was trying to think about the words. I was trying to consider it, which is a good thing to do when you're singing songs in church. Think about it. Consider it. Let it speak to your heart. But there's a phrase that jumped out at me that had never jumped out at me before that I thought, that's wrong. It's, it said, I know not why his wondrous grace to me he hath made known. I don't know why God made his grace known to me. That's what the song says. That's inaccurate. We know biblically that we were given mercy, we were given grace so that we could give him glory for it. Ephesians 1 tells us very plainly that we are, we are adopted, we're accepted in the beloved, we're given the forgiveness of sins, and that is all to the praise of the glory of his grace. His grace was given so that we would praise him and give him glory for it. This is, this is our our baseline expectation as Christians is to share in the glory of God and to give him that. We, uh, about a couple years ago, worked through Psalm 23. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Right? Him leading me in paths of righteousness, is that for my own good? Yeah, it is in a roundabout way. It's for my own good. But when it's all said and done, it's for his name's sake. It's for his glory. It's to proclaim him. It's to give him the glory. This is why 1 Corinthians can tell us that in whatsoever we do, whether you eat or drink anything, do it all to the glory of God. That's a very encompassing verse. I was posed the question a couple weeks ago, when's the last time, it was posed to me, when's the last time you drank a glass of water to the glory of God? I thought, maybe never. But there's, just, there's some truth to that. There's something as simple as a glass of water in your hand, you can hold and understand that the only reason I'm able to quench this thirst, the only reason I have this, and I'm not, I'm not withering on the vine and just drying, that I have this, this is to his praise. This is a blessing from his hand. This is something good that he has afforded me, and I will give him glory for, for the simplest of things, that all that we do, we give him glory. That's, that's a very biblical motivation to give, to serve, to work, to evangelize, to do it all to, for the glory of God because he's worthy. 
That's what the 24 elders sing in Revelation. Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. I hope that this morning I can, I can help to give you a little bit of a glimpse of who God is and who you are and our job as creation, not creator, as creation, to give him glory and to give him praise and to reflect to him. I hope that when the choir sang, and I love the choir song this morning, or we sang together, or when the group stood up to sing, that it wasn't just, oh, that sounded good. I'm glad it sounded good. If it sounded terribly off, it probably would have thrown us all in a different place. I'm glad it sounded good. But the point is not to say, oh, good job, you're great, that looked good, that sounded good the point is to say we give glory to God let's show it to him let's give him glory over and over and over because he's God like just just let that soak into your brain a little bit he's God everything else that you can look and find belongs to some sort of class I see a bunch of a bunch of people you belong to humans you, you may have a dog at home rover he's a dog you you a oak tree is a tree you always belong to some sort of class God is in his own class by himself God alone no other God beside him before him after him none alone singular that's holy that's unique that's God and as such he's the creator we're the created ones we, we need something to help us exist. He's self-existent. He's, when you just start to think about that a little bit, understand who he is, and in turn who you are, it becomes much easier to start to have this heartbeat of, I'm going to give him glory because he is worthy of that. Now where the, where the rubber meets the road for me and where I have a real disconnect with this verse personally is that it's not that I'm not shoveling around glory all over the place. It's that I tend to shovel glory in the wrong places and not point it up to God. My problem is not that there's not glory floating around and, and I somehow give glory somewhere. It's that I give it to all the wrong places and I want it myself. My problem is that I'm a glory thief, if I could just say it bluntly. My problem is that I want people to think highly of me. I want people to like me. I want people to say good sermon. I want people to say interesting thought. My problem is that I can study on the glory of God and I can be considering that and trying to think through this and, and give you something. And while I'm thinking about the glory of God, think inside of myself, oh, that's a good thought. They'll probably think that that was good or that was witty or that was funny or that was whatever. And, then, and all of a sudden, I'm, I'm studying the glory of God and, try, and thinking about how I'm going to steal the glory for myself. If I'm not careful, I can stand up and talk about how I steal the glory so that you'll think more highly of me and that you'll have more esteem and even the pride of life enters in this particular moment here. And I still want to steal some of the glory. Like, it's really complicated inside of our hearts. It's messy. And it's very difficult to not have mingled motives. We, we have these, these really perverse and dysfunctional motives that slither their way into our hearts all the time and we have to ask ourselves over and over and over again am I giving God his due am I pointing the glory to him or am I trying to absorb this selfishly for myself and that's that I don't know if, if you ever face that maybe you get it out of boy at work and you don't take any of it for yourself and you just talk about how all of life is a gift from God that's what Corinthians says all of life's a gift from God and if it's a gift from God why why do you glory as though you had not received it so if it is a gift, then you have to give the glory to him. Or perhaps you do that. 
Perhaps that's just your, your default mode to give glory and not to, not to take it for yourself and act like, well, I did that. I worked hard. I was smart. I studied. I did, and, to, and to not take it for yourself. But for me, I have a problem. I tend to steal a whole lot of glory. And I think the help starts by just, just confessing it and just admitting it. Just admit that we're at times glory thieves. And then cry out to help and say, God, help me see where I do this and where I go astray because I want to repent of this and I want to lay this down and I want to I set myself free from myself. I want to live for you in your glory. And these words that Paul gives, it's short, it's at the end of the letter, but it's not just humdrum rote going through the routine. It is let's understand the depth of this that now we give to God and our Father glory forever and ever, so let it be. Let it be the case that in your life and in your family and in our church and our community, the name of Jesus is made great and God gets the glory and we don't try to rob it for ourselves. We don't try to have selfish motives with what we do, but we give it to him. Secondly, greetings to others. Glory to God and greetings to others. This is really, really simple, but I love it. Verse 21, salute or greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren which are with me, they greet you. All the saints salute you, chiefly they that are of Caesar's household. This is saying, go greet your brothers and sisters in Jesus' name. The brothers and sisters that you have in Jesus that are with me, they're greeting you. And actually, there's a group of people, and I love that Paul puts this in Philippians. It's very unique. And if you've been with us through the course of Philippians, you probably understand what he's doing. When he says chiefly or primarily, those that are of Caesar's household greet you. So if, if you remember, Philippi is a Roman colony, Roman, citizen, Roman citizens. Extreme loyalty to the emperor, so much so that many of them worshipped the emperors as gods. This was a problem in Philippi. This was, the Christians were often seen as seditious in working against the emperor because they would not bow the knee to Caesar. They would not proclaim him as Lord. They would not worship him as a God. They would only worship Jesus. And they were oftentimes persecuted and killed because of this. This is at least part of the reason why Paul can be on trial in Rome and best we know he's going to be executed because he's proclaiming a king of kings that is beyond Caesar. So it was problematic to be a Christian and to be under Caesar at the same time. This created a lot of tension in this day and age, especially if you lived in very patriotic Philippi. So these Philippians know this. It's clear through the book that they're going through persecution. So I almost feel like with a wink, Paul tells them, look, greet your brothers and sisters in Jesus, and they're greeting you. And by the way, people in Caesar's household, they're greeting you now too. Like there's some people in Caesar's household that the gospel has penetrated that sucker, and they, are, they got Jesus. There are people all around the emperor right now that are believing and are putting their faith in Jesus. So that's, he doesn't do that in any other book. He just does it in this one where he, he goes out of his way to say primarily those that are in Caesar's household are actually greeting you because they got Jesus now too. That's awesome. That, that's such, I have to believe that encouraged this church so much to know that now Paul, they're chained to the praetorian guard. Now people are getting saved and the, and the message is starting to spread inside of not just Rome as a whole, because there was a Roman church, but inside of even Caesar's household. Were they blood relatives? Were they just some of the servants in his household? We don't know, but regardless, they're, they're in and around Caesar and they got Jesus. 
And Paul says, even they, primarily, chiefly, even they greet you. Now, there's something for us to glean here in the significance of this, of this encouragement to greet other people I don't think was lost on the Philippians. Paul has tried to emphasize all through this book, unity, 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 harmony, the mind of Christ, get along, Yodius and Syntyche, don't fight with each other, get along, have the mind of Jesus over and over and over. So it's very fitting that he would end with a greet other people and other people greet you. I can take you, I won't for sake of time, but I could take you to a dozen different passages where you are instructed as believers. This is instruction for us to learn. We are instructed as believers to greet others, primarily other believers, but I can take you to a few and I'll show you one in a moment where we're instructed to even greet and, and welcome those that are not like us, that are our enemies. I can take you to a dozen places where that's your instruction. I can take you to 40 or 50 places where you see people referenced that they greeted each other as an example. So this, there's a lot of press on greeting each other in the Bible, actually. There's a lot of press on that. It seems like something that we would just read through and, okay, uh, moving on. But it's actually something to glean and something to learn. You say, what do you mean salute or greet somebody? I mean very simply, hi, how are you doing today? It's good to see you. I'm glad you're here. I've been praying for you. All of those are greetings that we give each other. Greeting people is actually intensely biblical, and it does matter. It does matter that we have a heart to greet others and be warm and friendly to them. If you've ever been to a cold, dead church, you know this to be the case. You walked in and no one, no one welcomed you, no one shook your hand, no one hugged you, no one greeted you. They just scowled at you and thought, what are you doing there? You're sitting in, in Joe's row. Why are you in his row? And that's what you got. And that's not very fun to be in that environment. I'm thankful that our church is not that way and that we have, we have a lot of love and a lot of greeting. I'm thankful that we carve out. Why do we carve out 60, 90 seconds to go shake hands with each other in the middle of the song service? There's not a whole lot of churches that do that, honestly. That's a, that's, it's not entirely a Baptist thing, but it's pretty unique. If you have a Catholic background, I doubt you had handshaking time. Why? Why do we do that? Well, it's rooted in the actual instruction biblically to go greet each other. Like it's rooted in that, that we want to be warm and friendly and welcoming, and that should be part of the fabric of the church, is to greet each other. And when you greet each other, it actually communicates a lot. A good greeting will communicate to someone that you have not met and you don't know, it communicates, I want to know you. To someone that you already do know, it communicates, I want to know how you're doing. It communicates to people, you're welcome here, you're important, you have great value. Greeting people, shaking hands, hugging people, saying hi, how are you doing? Tell me about you, I don't know you, how long have you been coming to church? All of those sorts of things are actually very, very important and they do things for us. I'm gonna give you three things that greeting do. This is, this is so bottom shelf, but this is just, this is practical instruction from Paul, so I'm just transferring it to you. Here's what greetings do. Good greetings keep relationships consistent. And current. I want to say that one first. Current first. Think about the prodigal son, Luke 15. The prodigal goes away from home. He now turns in his mind, goes back home, and Luke 15 tells us this about his father. When he came to his father, when he was a great way off, his father saw him, and what happened? He had compassion on him, and he ran, and he fell on his neck, and he kissed him. That's a greeting. That's a, I love you, 
I am going to express this. I am going to go to you and I am going to hug, kiss. You may not, may not need to kiss everybody, but I'm going to hug, kiss. I'm going to give you a greeting. I'm thankful the story does not read. Dad was sweeping the porch, prodigal after all these years come home. And dad said, hey, son, how you doing? Dinner's on the stove and just kept sweeping the porch. I'm thankful the story tells us he greeted him. Like he went out of his way to go meet him and to greet him and to put that relationship to make it current and to kind of help heal the wounds. This can happen with your kids. This can happen with your spouse. It's far beyond church. Ever been at odds with your spouse and you weren't sure exactly what to do? You're, you're working at it. You're trying to communicate. You're trying to figure it out. This happened like one time for us where we were, we're trying to figure it out. But there are times where that's the case, and maybe my wife to me or me to her, that we'll put our arm around each other or we'll hug each other and say, look, I know we haven't figured this out, but I love you and I do want to figure this out. And it doesn't always get solved in the next instant. It's not like magic pixie dust that you can put in your relationship. You still got to work at it. But there are times where that relationship helps in a moment of tension where it feels like the relationship is spinning out of control and, and, and fracturing a little bit, where all of a sudden that can help to keep that relationship current. When I, when I leave for work or when I come home from work, I want to do the same thing right before I leave and right, right when I get home every time. I want to give the, the kids and Maggie, I want to give them a hug and a kiss every single time. Why? Because I want to greet them when I walk in the door and I want them actually to greet me too, not to just be busy over there, you know, playing with their toy and be like, hey dad, it's good to see you. You know, I want them to come see me. I want to keep that relationship current over and over and over again. And a greeting does that. It helps to keep it current. A good greeting will help to keep a relationship comfortable. When you greet other people, they feel welcomed, they feel loved, they feel good, they feel so much more comfortable when you greet your friends properly, even strangers properly. Ever had a friend that maybe walked by you and you thought like, why did they just walk by me? Like, did I not respond to their text? Like, did I say something wrong? Did I do something? And you start to play all these mental scenarios. I'm like, they just went right by me. They didn't say anything. They didn't look at me. They didn't greet me. They didn't talk to me. Sometimes that can, that can mess with people. I used to have this all the time with, with my mother-in-law when I lived in California for about six years. I lived in the same city as my in-laws. And I used to think it was a her problem, but I found out it was a me problem. That I would go into my mother-in-law's home and they would invite us over. Maybe it's, I don't know, Monday Night Football or something. We'd go over. And I've been in the house a million times. I just saw her like three hours ago. You know, I, I'm just, I'm strolling you know, someone's already sitting down watching TV, watching the game, so I'm going to go watch the game. And I would just buzz right past my mother-in-law. And I, in my stupid head, I'm thinking, I don't, why do I need to greet you again? Like, we see each other all the time. And in her head, and some of you ladies are probably like, you are so, you just do not get this. <laughs> but in her head, she's thinking like, and she's talking to my wife, like, what's wrong? Did I do something? Is Mark mad at me? Is, is there something wrong? I used to think like, she needs to get over this. Like, I'm just, I'm just going to watch the game. I realized that's not her problem. That was my problem. I was coming into her home and I wasn't greeting her. I wasn't saying, hey, let me give you a hug. Good to see you again. I know we just saw each other, but again, uh, thank you for having us over. Like that was on me. I needed to greet her. And, and naturally she was a little flustered when I didn't greet her. So that helps to keep even our, even our good relationships current with each other. It should be every Sunday. We have a big old family reunion and we're hugging it out and we're shaking hands and I'm praying for you and I love you and how you doing and, and we're trying to look for people that are new and we're trying to keep those relationships comfortable just with a simple greeting. I would also say this, a good greeting keeps relationships consistent. This is what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. 
He's, he's very well known for verse 46, but I don't know that I've ever heard a sermon on verse 47. We normally cut it at verse 46, but they go together. Verse 46, if ye love them which love you, what reward have you? Do not even the publicans the same. You love people that love you, whoop de do. You don't get a cookie. Like there's just no big deal. Publicans do that. But then he says the same thing, but in light of greeting in the next verse. If you salute, not salute, but greet, if you greet your brethren only, what do you more than others? Do not even the publicans the same. He says the same thing about greeting. You only go greet the people that are like you. You, you come to church and you only go out of your way to go find your clique, your friends, the people that you know. And that's easy to do. It's real easy to do. Here's, here's my section, my friend base. They're always behind me. They're always in front of me. I'm comfortable. I have a little group of people that I can talk to. So I don't know everybody else. And you can't know everybody in a church of size. I get that. But I don't, I just, I'll just stay in my little group. I'll be very insular and I'll never go out of my way. And Jesus says, don't do that. There's actual reward if you go out of your way to meet someone that's new. This is specifically in light of loving your enemies, even people that disagree with you or aren't on the same page as you. When you go out of your way and you stay consistent that I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna thumb my nose at you. I'm not going to, well, you offended me, so I'm not gonna shake your hand. When you get into that, that's factional. That's, that doesn't unify anything that hurts. So a, a good greeting, it's very simple, but it goes a long way in helping the body of a church, and helping us unify, and helping us love each other. I remember just three and a half, four years ago, my wife and I were new to the church. We didn't know anybody. We, we, if you're new, welcome. I was you once, okay? I was you. I didn't know anybody. And I remember my first Sunday here. I think a few people said, hey, I don't remember who. If you remember, I'm sorry. I, you were forgettable. But I do remember, I do remember Alan Keener. I sat down in Pastor Rousey's Sunday school class. I remember Alan Keener, wherever he's at, walking up to me. And I was sitting down. He kind of stood me up. If you know Alan, he'll do that. And, and he gave me a half handshake, half bear hug, probably lifted me off the ground in the process, and smiled at me and greeted me. I didn't know Alan from Adam. But I remember that experience, that here was someone that was friendly to me. And as a new person, you want someone to be friendly to you. You want someone to love you, to smile at you, to talk to you, to, to welcome you. So let's do our best. Let me encourage you as a church body. I challenge you to meet someone new every Sunday. You say, I'm introverted. I don't like it. I want to get out of my bubble. I challenge you. Be consistent in your greeting and go meet somebody. It could be the person just sitting behind you. You don't have to become best friends with them, but make it a goal. I want, to, I want to look for someone who's new. I want to welcome people. I think we do a good job of this. I really do. But I want to encourage you to keep that up and maybe intensify it. Make it a goal that every Sunday I'm going to meet somebody who's new. And my goal is to greet them and to make them feel comfortable and to welcome them. Paul, Paul said, he takes a couple verses out and says, look, greet people. People greet you. There's, there's this group of people that greet you. Just greet each other. Salute, greet, have that as, as a fabric inside of the culture of your church. Lastly, grace to you. I'm almost out of time. This book is bookended with grace. The second verse of Philippians 1 says, Grace be unto you. The last verse of the book says, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. I'm thankful that the two songs we sang at the end congregationally were all about grace this morning. We will go forth by grace alone. Every, every word of hope we give, every, every soul we want to reach, all of it is because of the grace of the Lord. And he ends this not, not in just a, a roach, humdrum way, but in a very intense way. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. So let it be. Let it be that way. Justice is God giving us what we deserve. 
Mercy is God not giving us what we deserve. We deserve condemnation. We deserve judgment. We deserve punishment. But his mercy kicks in and we do not get that. But then it's not just left there. His grace gives us what we don't deserve. I don't deserve forgiveness of my sins. I don't deserve a home in heaven. I don't deserve to enter boldly into the throne room of God and have a relationship with him. I don't deserve that, but I praise God for his grace that gives it to me and makes it, a, makes it accessible for me to be able to enter in a relationship with Jesus and to continue in that relationship with Jesus. It is through his grace, and that grace is available to you whether you know him as your savior or not. That's available to you to enter into a relationship with him and know him as your savior today. If you don't, it's also available to you if you know him to continue and to have the strength that you need and the energy that you need to walk through the Christian life. Nothing you can do to earn it, but there's a lot to learn. There's a lot to grow in. Adrian Rogers said it this way. He said, if you're not growing in grace, you're living in disgrace. And that's the truth. We want to grow in our relationship with the Lord strictly and only through his grace. Anything that's notable in the 35-year in history of Harvest Baptist Church is because of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as such, the glory goes to him. Amen. The honor goes to him. The praise goes to him. Because we understand it's all by his grace. If you, I'll end this morning this way, if you don't know the grace of Jesus, just on an entry level, I want to tell you that he offers to you freely as a gift something that you don't deserve, but he wants to give it to you from his grace. That he, Jesus, God, came in the flesh, lives a perfect life, and he dies for us. For our sins, he's buried, and he raises from the dead, and as such, he now has atoned and paid for our sins and offers sheerly through his grace. Not by anything that we do. Not by any good. No good outweigh the bad. No, I'm, I'm, I'm going to do this myself. I'll chip in a little bit. None. Sheerly through his grace, he offers you forgiveness of sins. He offers you eternal life, a home in heaven. He offers you peace with the Father because of his grace. And if you've never accepted that gift, I encourage you to accept it. Turn from yourself from your own way, repent, and in faith, accept that gift because it's available through his grace. If you know that grace, then glory in it and celebrate it and live in the grace of Jesus over and over and over again. I love that ending. I love that prayer over the church of Philippi. I would pray the same thing over us as a church body. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with us always. May we live there. May we understand that we are completely dependent, but he is completely sufficient. And his grace is made available to us.